we've been taught by the war on drugs that drug users are bad, they, they, they must go to jail. And to really deliver care to these people who are suffering, we have to kind of put that war on drug mentality aside. And even for me, I certainly had some biases of my own that I had to unravel as, as I've been, you know, been working on this topic now for 10 years, but you don't recognize your own blind spots, right? Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Globe Podcast. Beth Macy is a journalist who has written with great compassion about the opioid crisis in America. Addiction can be a difficult process for so many reasons, in part because we can often approach it with bias. Beth was moved by the addiction stories that she uncovered, and eventually she wrote a bestseller about the opioid epidemic called Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America. The book has been adapted into a series for Hulu starring Rosario Dawson and Michael Keaton. As my wife and I watched it, we often shed tears because it was heartbreaking to see how it revealed that innocent people wanting to treat their pain didn't know they could likely become addicted to the medication, which in this case is OxyContin. We talk about Beth's compassionate writing process, and she shares stories of filming the series, including her appearance in the show. Here's my conversation with Beth Macy, author of Dope Sick. If you or someone you know are suffering from addiction, please see in our show notes where we post some links to helpful resources. Hi, Beth. It's great to be back with you again. It's great to be here. I am remembering with a smile when our producer reached out to you that it was so fun to see your response that you're a huge Glow fan. I did not know that. Huge, huge, almost every day glow fan with my BFF, Martha Biebinger. And we we do yoga together almost every morning. That's so cool. Do you use the practice with a friend feature? Uh, Yes, yes. And um, she turned me on to it, but we have some favorites. We we love Gustavo and Elena and Joe, and we think she's in Australia. Um, you know, we just we have certain ones for whatever body part is ailing us, and it's it's been really great. Not just the yoga, which is fantastic, but also just the the daily fellowship. You know, the check in, and because she lives in Boston, I live in Virginia, so it's, it's been really cool. Mm, that's amazing. We love hearing stories like that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So I want to turn to your newest book, Dope Sick. It's, uh, the, it's, the title is Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company That Addicted America, and the show about it on Hulu. And I hope in our conversation to make the case for why people should read your book and watch the show, which, by the way, are both captivating and heartbreaking. And part of what your work has done for me is to destigmatize opioid addiction. You've expanded my awareness on how incredibly easy it seems to inadvertently become addicted or, or die from these drugs and how difficult it is to treat the addiction. And I also knew very little about fentanyl and nor did I know anything about the companies that produced and distributed or distribute OxyContin and how they misled and lied to their sales teams, doctors, the FDA, the public, 
about how addictive this drug is. And so I'm curious if we start off with you sharing uh, with us a bit of your background and how you came to report on and write about this topic. Sure. Um, so I was a longtime newspaper reporter here in Roanoke, Virginia. I worked at the Roanoke Times for 25 years. And one of the last series uh, projects I did was in 2012. Um, and it was when heroin first sort of bubbled up as a problem. And it wasn't in the inner city, which, or, or you know, uh, stereotypically marginalized community that I normally reported on. It was actually in the wealthiest suburb. And I did this three-part series on how on how heroin had upended the lives of this these two young men who who had been private school classmates. One died from heroin overdose, and the other was about to go to prison for five years for his role in selling him the heroin. And so I did this three-part series. Readers literally like spit up their coffee and went, "What wealthy white kids are doing heroin?" We had no idea, and of course, I didn't really know either because. It wasn't something that made the news a lot then. And what I came to learn later, a couple of years later, when I was casting about for an idea for my second book, um, was that the heroin epidemic that I started reporting it in the late aughts, early teens, was very much a continuation of the Oxycontin and opioid pill painkiller epidemic that began in the late 90s with the introduction of Oxycontin and this notion that Purdue paid for among our healthcare providers and paid for lobbying and to, to basically change the narrative among healthcare providers that whereas they knew for a century that opioids should only be used post-surgery not for very long, cancer, end of life. Now they were saying opioids and namely their drug Oxycontin was safe for all manner of, you know, what you and I would consider kind of minor things. Like it's not minor when you have backache, but don't, it's it's not safe to, for moderate backache to go to Oxycontin first thing, but they, they changed the narrative. Um, and the way they did it was they targeted these poor distressed communities where the jobs were going away and where they had high inc incidence of workplace injuries. And they sent their doctors out to say that OxyContin is safer than competing opioids. It was also way stronger than competing opioids. And when doctors like raise concerns, they're like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. The FDA allows us to say it's safer. And the FDA did. And the story about how that came to be is something that the Hulu show, uh, I think, unravels really well. But when I first started writing about heroin in 2012, I didn't realize how connected it was to the pills. Now I ran into the kid recently, he came to the, the dope sick premiere here in Roanoke, the first person who ever taught me the word dope sick. And um, he's doing well now after his prison stint. I mean, well, he, he has PTSD from having been in prison, and um, but he's doing well, all things considered. And he just reminded me of those early days and how uh, he actually was the one who taught me. He, he said, if you're addicted to heroin and you know that your dealer isn't going to be available to you for four or five days and you just have X amount left, you're going to parse that out so you don't end up in withdrawal. And the word he used was dope sick, which is like this excruciating pain that people go through. And so, which is why I really appreciate you starting off by saying um, the show and the book destigmatize it because many people at the end of their journey, they're not 
taking these opioid uh, drugs to get high. They're doing it so as not to be dope sick. I didn't know what dope sick meant prior to reading your book and watching the show. And I wonder if at this point it'd be helpful for you to share some statistics that give us a sense of the scale of what we're dealing with here. For example, mm -hmm. number of deaths or number of pills produced, the crime. Also, sure. you, you give us some projections in terms of how opioids are on pace to kill a certain number of Americans over the next 10 years. Yeah, and actually the numbers are a lot worse than they were when uh, Dope Sick first came out. Back then, the stat of the day was we have lost 300,000 Americans to drug overdose in the past 15 years. We're on track to, to lose that many more in just the next five. So it was an upward curve, right? And when I checked back with the professor scholar who gave me those numbers, um, and he's been plotting out drug overdose deaths going back to 1979. It is an exponential curve. And when I said, well, how many deaths have we lost since 1999? Since, I mean, since 1996, the year OxyContin came out. And he sent me the CDC uh, charts and I added them up. There had been a lot of news around the fact that during COVID, America lost uh, more than 100,000 people. That just came out maybe three months ago. Right. But nobody had put together. They always go back to 1999. I said, let's go back to 1996 when OxyContin first kind of revolutionized the way these drugs were being prescribed. And when you added all the numbers up, we've asked, actually lost over 1 million people mm. uh, since 1996 to drug overdoses, not not just opioids, but mostly to opioids, uh, two thirds to three quarters to opioids. And when I asked that, um, that scholar, when did he predict that those numbers would, um, would double again, get to 2 million? It was by 2029, so that's just seven years from now. And so you see it really is an exponential curve. And, and of course, that's not counting all the deaths from, uh, addiction-related illness like endocarditis or hepatitis C or HIV. Um, it's not counting all the, all the friends and family members that are grieving still the loss of these people. More than um, or roughly a third of Americans uh, have had opioid use disorder be a serious problem in their family. That was a Gallup poll that came out a couple months back. And, you know, a third, and I dare say there's almost no one who doesn't at least know somebody who's been impacted by it. Right. In the show and in your book, you go into the detail of how Purdue went about this, what seemed to be um, an organized strategy for presenting this medication in a way that was misleading. And I want to come back to that, but I wonder if we spend a little bit more time on the experience of the addiction and how hard it is to treat the addiction. For example, I didn't realize that it took so long to recover. I didn't realize that it had such a, um, a damaging effect on certain parts of the brain and also that the treatment for opioid use disorder is quite counterintuitive. So we have a treatment gap in our country of about 88%, and it's just very slowly getting better. When I say 88%, that means that 12% of people with substance use disorders have been able to get treatment in the past year. Uh, just 12%. I mean, that's astonishingly low in a first world country. 
And part of the reason that is, is because there remains stigma around uh, both OUD or opioid use disorder, as well as the gold standard uh, treatments for them. Uh, the gold standards of care for OUD are buprenorphine and methadone. These are weaker opioids themselves. So there is this notion floating around um, that it's just treating an addiction with another drug. And it's really not true because at this point, when, when somebody has been using opioids for a while, the brain gets acculturated to it. It, it almost hijacked is a word that comes up a lot. Um, so such that uh, their body stops producing natural opioids. Um, and if they don't get external opioids, they feel um, uh, just uh, just a terrible, terrible craving. And then this, this physical and psychological anxiety, depression, nausea, diarrhea, uh, restless leg. I mean, that's, that's dope sickness in a nutshell. And we know that when people use these medication-assisted treatments, buprenorphine or methadone, we know that they are at least 60% more likely not to die um, and that they have, um, you know, a much better chance of, uh, you know, uh, getting jobs, getting their families back, getting their life on track. And very, very slowly, they can wean off the medicine if they and their healthcare provider thinks that's the way to go. But a lot of experts think it's not unlike a diabetic having to take insulin for the rest of their lives. Like their brain has been changed. Um, so there's still a lot of research to be done on that. But but the evidence is really clear. And where I see people uh, falling through the cracks, um, the young woman I write about the most in Dope Sick is a young woman named Tess Henry who... Um, every time she had access to her MAT would be doing okay. And then when she would lose it or she wouldn't be able to get in with another provider because of long waiting lists, um, that's when she really fell through the cracks. And, you know, ultimately she doesn't make it in in the book, which is just horrifically sad. And this is a, you know, a person who's, who would, you would think would have had every opportunity uh, to get treatment because her dad was a physician, her mom works at a hospital, and she didn't. And a lot of the reason she didn't was because of the stigmatization of these medicines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the performance by Michael Keaton in terms of him conveying and mm. coming to the realization that he may be on these medications for the rest of his life, and his whole journey, watching him agonize over whether or not to prescribe, and then ultimately how we see him navigate his own addiction. Yeah, isn't he good? So good. He's so good. <laughs> and then seeing... I could watch him over and over. Uh, and just, uh, you know, that was really, really important to me. Like, Hollywood comes calling. We want to turn your book into a series. Great, great, absolutely great. The two things I really wanted going into it was I wanted um, just what you said. I wanted to destigmatize people with opioid use disorder. So when you see Michael Keaton being stigmatized uh, initially for getting on methadone, or you see Betsy not being, you know, being stigmatized uh, in, in her AA meetings for even considering it, um, I think we really showed how that breaks down uh, too often in America. And the other thing was I didn't want us to stereotype Appalachia and um, I, I don't think we did. It's, it's rare as the movie that um, 
or, or show that that ventures into um, the lives of poor people in Appalachians and, and doesn't resort to stereotypes. So I'm really proud of the way um, the show came out with that regard too. And you mentioned Betsy. How do you pronounce her last name? Malum? Malum. Mm -hmm. Betsy Malum as Caitlin Deaver. Is it Deaver? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Incredible as well. Oh, yeah. She's really incredible. They called her Little Meryl for Meryl Streep on the set. And um, she was so into getting the dope sickness in particular exactly right that she made like a spreadsheet of all the different characteristics and I just love that combination of being really creative and yet just really doing our homework. And apparently there was somebody in the crew who was in recovery from OUD and she really mm -hmm. leaned on him a lot too, which, you know, that was, that was really cool to see. It definitely comes across and seeing the two of them interact and navigate their own mutual shame around this. And I think in terms of destigmatizing mission certainly accomplished Oh, thank you. I also want to mention Rosario Dawson and uh, her performance, equally incredible. Uh, Absolutely. And, and and through her character, she plays this DEA agent um, who, uh, you know, is just a total badass, right? Yeah. Like she's, she's tough and she turns a lot of people off because she's so tough. But you also see that everybody has their pain in the story mm -hmm. and, and, she has to work so hard at trying to hold this company to account that she experiences her own pain because of it and in her own relationship. So I think that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. And you have an appearance on the show in episode <laughs> <Brief>. three. <laughs> what was that like? Well, that was interesting. Um, I'm really glad I did it because that was the only way I got on set because the COVID restrictions were so mm -hmm. um, serious. You had to like go four days early and get tested every day before you could be like where the actors were because, you know, they didn't want to have to shut down the filming because of COVID. And um, so because I had this little tiny role that, by the way, I did have to audition for. Um, hmm. I'm sure I, I got a pass because I was the author of the book, but, um, uh, I was able to, you know, really see that how they shoot every scene like 20 times and from different angles and then splice it all together, which of course makes sense. But, you know, it was really, you know, when my little scene, I'm, I'm in this community meeting and there's like 30 extras in the audience of this meeting in which I'm on a panel and then at least that many more people standing behind them on the crew. And, you know, it's just a huge production. I mean, I just was there for that one little scene, but, but, uh, you know, hats off to Hulu for really doing a first class job um, at such a big production, you know, it's five different storylines and it wasn't a cheap show to produce and you know and and we had to have all of our eyes dotted and our t's crossed legally too so mm -hmm. it was a big effort the showrunner danny strong is amazing you know he had done uh, game change recount the butler so he had experience he really knew how to take a non-fiction book or story and uh bring it to life uh within the context of a docuseries so um, I'm really, really lucky that my first project was with him because he, he's just fun to work with. 
really serious, works very, very hard, and um, was able to just wrangle all these different storylines, all these different people um, in, in a way that I think everybody ultimately was just so proud of how it came out. Yeah, you mentioned kudos to Hulu. I can imagine the legal consideration that would have been part of this process. Absolutely. There are other shows who cover or navigate this crisis uh, in their storyline narratives that don't actually name the company and the family. Yeah. Well, as we were working on the show, more documentation was coming out like every week. People leaked us documents. New lawsuits were filed. Mm -hmm. uh, Massachusetts actually named the Sacklers in their suits. They were the first state to name the Sacklers. And um, in, in their legal filing, which was, you know, many, many pages long, there was a lot of new information to us. A book came out like right before we were done shooting called Empire of Pain that had some new information in it. We were able to include some of that in the story. Like literally Danny was writing one scene um, right before they shot it the next day. And it was a scene that we had previously had, um, but it was a second source and it allowed us, you know, the lawyers were nervous about one source, but then we had two. And so that he was able to put that scene back in. So, you know, we interviewed a lot of people that have worked for the company. Um, together, we would, you know, we would get on the phone, conference in a person. We brought um, Dr. Steve Lloyd, who is a doctor, very much like the Keaton character. He's a Tennessee doctor. We brought him into the writing room um, in, in 2020. Uh, we, were all, we were all working virtually via Zoom. Um, after COVID hit, we all just kind of went back to our corners and uh, we brought Dr. Steve in one day just to tell us everything from the horrors of being dope sick to being shopped by patients to being, you know, told lies by reps to being um, in re rehabs. And, and now he's an addiction doctor himself. And I think when we interviewed him on Zoom, you could see the, um, the clinic he runs and the logo behind him. And it's almost exactly parallel to where Michael Keaton ends up at the end of his journey. So that that was really neat to watch unfold too. Hmm. What was that like to see your writing turned into a show? Well, it was super exciting. I mean, mainly because of those two things: the fact that we didn't stereotype Appalachia, the fact that we didn't we didn't hammer the abusers as Richard Sackler has, you know, often told people to do. We, we made them human beings, many of whom were initially addicted through no fault of their own. And, you know, we showed just the insidious nature of opioids and when they, you know, run smack into greed and a lack of a regulatory system and to see it, like to see this story that had been slow simmering for, 25 years to see it compressed into eight hours of television um, in a way that makes it uh, not just entertaining and moving, but also really understandable. You know, I think there's so many articles, hundreds of articles about the lawsuits, about the overdose crisis, about fentanyl, but the, our show really makes it understandable for the average reader. And I think once you've seen it, you go, oh, this is how it started. Mm -hmm. So not only do you get it, but then also you can have 
empathy one hopes for all the folks that got ensnared in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my wife and I, I can't count the number of times we shed tears watching that. It's so heartbreaking to see, like I said at the beginning, innocent, lovely people wanting to treat their pain, but not knowing that they would end up becoming addicted to this medication. Absolutely. I want to go into, like I said, I want to go back to Purdue and and some of the um, ways in which this came about. Uh, One last question in terms of turning your writing into a show. I can imagine that the decision-making process of what to leave out must be a struggle, if not painful. Was there anything that's in your book that's that you really wanted in the show? There's so much that you cover in your book that you don't cover in the show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the show really tracks with um, part one of the book, the first third. So the the cent, you know, the second third and the third third barely get covered, except for you have these characters in the early Oxycontin story that run into the same snags that uh, Tess Henry does in the book later in the book. So, um, so that was really like that was very informing of the story. Danny wanted to tell the story of the early crisis, right? It mostly ends in two thousand and seven. Uh, with the guilty plea uh, by Purdue, not any Sacklers, just three executives who were, quote, thrown under the bus, right, by the Sacklers. And, um, you know, kind of a smack on the wrist for a company that had made billions off this drug. And then afterwards, just turbocharges sales and and goes right on. And, And you know, we wanted to show that, but we mainly wanted the story to end in 07. And Dope Sick, the book, uh, goes right up to early 2018. And, but there's a lot of stuff that happens in the interim that because I had this experience of reporting, we were able to fold into the earlier story in a way that isn't you know, out of line or incorrect. We also had a member um, of the writing team who is in recovery himself and had um, spent a year going to a methadone clinic um, in New York City, not in, you know, uh, Appalachia, but his experience tracked really well and brought a lot to the conversations too. Mm. So you'd mentioned earlier the lies by the reps and you referred to one of the doctors. Can you share with us how Purdue went about convincing the FDA to create this label that allowed for this drug to exist? Some of the ways that they changed the axis of certain charts to make it seem as though this medication is less addictive than it is. I mean, we could spend a whole hour just probably on this section. I mean, they, they <laughs> yeah, came up with the like, show is like, actually, even though it's a docudrama, it is spot on with exactly what happened down to Curtis Wright, who was the FDA um, medical review officer who uh, approved OxyContin. Um, you know, we dramatized that in the show, but that's all from like that leaked memo that I mentioned. It's all from interviews. Um, what they did basically was they, um, 
you know, they had lobbyists, they had, there's a quote from Richard in one of the lawsuits about we can get every congressperson or senator on the phone in 10 minutes if we want to, or something to that effect. And what they did is they, you know, they bought influence. They, um, so once they get this label, which becomes their primary selling tool, that's, that's a quote from somebody at Purdue, this label is our primary selling tool. Uh, you know, a label like that had never been uh, allowed before. And then you have 18 months after it's approved, the guy who approves it goes to work for Purdue Pharma, like tripling his government salary. And that's when you hear about the revolving door, that's what that is. You know, we shouldn't allow people being reg our regulators being soft on industry because they're thinking about what the retirement job's going to be. I mean, that's just wrong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we got this memo that showed how Curtis Wright and some members of Purdue not only were like talking about uh, how to, you know, make this drug super profitable, they were, they were, you know, they rented a hotel suite offsite down the road from the FDA and literally wrote some of the documentation together. Um, and it, it's just so wrong when you, when you look at it. And um, one of the, the things that we're like, well, how does that happen? Well, it happens because going back to Ronald Reagan and deregulation and suddenly the FDA is largely the regulatory budget comes from industry. So, you know, that's another loophole we need to fix. And so we were just really hoping to show how that happens, how it is that once they get that golden ticket, that label, then they've got to convince doctors. They paid 5,000 doctors, nurses, pharmacists to go on these swanky vacations where they would learn more about OxyContin and become paid speakers for the company, just like you see Dr. Phoenix, the Michael Keaton character doing. And that's all from the records and the archives. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, down to the, the, the stuffed gorilla and the OxyContin branded beach hat that you see him carrying at the end of um, one of the episodes. It's all stuff they did. And it's when you lay it all out there in eight hours, it, it's really, it's really stunning. It's just so shocking. In your book, you provide a pretty lengthy history of humans and our relationship to opioids and, and the addiction, the addictions that uh, can easily ensue. And Throughout these, you know, while reading your book and watching the show, I'm constantly thinking, how we should have known better. How does something like this slip through? And part of what you just shared explains it. But also, they were very savvy along the way with redefining pain, the concept mm -hmm. of doubling the dose, the concept of breakthrough pain, pseudo addiction. It was just, it seemed like an endless onslaught of really clever and Marketing. Oh, marketing. Yeah. And, and which all goes back to Arthur Sackler, who had nothing to do with Oxycontin because he was dead before they came out with it. But, you know, he made Valium the nation's first billion dollar drug. He was a marketer. And then his, um, you know, descendants or his, um, his relatives took that and, you know, made it even bigger. And when you, when you see that playing out, you see the, the Billy character, the sales rep, you know, 
Michael Keaton slowly realizes he's been duped and he gets really, really angry. Um, you know, that happened right and left. And it, it was to a point where like, I have a lot of friends who are doctors or nurses. They all have a story, you know, I went to the ER with a friend not long ago. Her husband was ill. There's that pain chart with the smiley faces. I mean, it was it's all around. It was so well saturated. And part of the reason that they were able to do it is they co-opted the pain societies and the pain orgs. Um, and they, they funded them. Um, they funded some of the best names in pain medicine. Russell Portnoy, you see, he later recants, you know, oh, we went too far. He he tells the Wall Street Journal in 2012. But in our show, as we portray it, you know, they basically paid him to, you know, he's Ivy League and, uh, and other people at great institutions. I mean, just think of everything you can think of with the Sackler name on it, from medical schools to the, the Met um, to Tufts University. Um, they bought influence and they were very clever about it. Yeah, that was very painful to watch. And to also see the dynamic between Richard and his father and the struggle that he was going through, to think that had there potentially been a better father-son relationship, so much pain could have been averted in our country. Yeah, uh, the book Empire of Pain goes into uh, more detail on the the family side of that. We we weren't able to interview any members of the Sackler family. Uh, we tried, but um, they were not responsive. But um, there have been there's been some great reporting on that, um, and certainly, I all along have been more interested in kind of what happened as a result. How are the victims being treated now? How are these communities where it first bubbled up as a problem? You know, these rural outlying communities that most people have no idea about. And that's where you see so much division, so much political division now. And there's so much anger in those communities. And, and a lot of it goes back to factories closing and jobs going away and coal mines shutting down. But a lot of those communities, um, you know, had the the twin aspect of really being hit hard by um, drug makers and distributors, uh, Purdue, and many other companies as well, but they, they sort of led the charge. And I think- They targeted them. Absolutely, because of the workplace injuries that 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 they had higher incidences of, um, just very cunning, and I think it's going to be generations before any of these communities are able to really fully recover from it. Yeah, you certainly convey that. How has immersing yourself in this crisis and spending time with people and their stories affected you personally? Yeah, that's a really good question. When, when I finished Dope Sick the book, I'm like, I never want to write about this again, ever. Mm. It was so dark. You know, the main person I had spent the most time with, her and her mother, you know, she was murdered on Christmas Eve. Her body found at the bottom of a dumpster. Um, so sad. Uh, so sad. I just, just couldn't imagine a darker ending for a book. And, um, and, and yet, you know, the sadness I felt was nothing like what what these thousands of families have felt. 
Um, and, uh, but as I went around the country talking about the book, um, for gosh, two years, um, I started hearing stories of really cool people who were working on solutions. And I was like, I'm not putting this story down yet. Whoop. Get me rewrite. I want to, I want to do, I'm not, I thought I was done with this topic, but I'm not. And so I just finished on Friday. I turned in my last edit for my new book, which is called Raising Lazarus, uh, Hope, Justice in the Future of America's Overdose Crisis. And it, it's largely a story of people who aren't waiting around for the government to solve it. They aren't waiting around for the lawsuit money to trickle in. They're going to the addicted where they are, people who use drugs, and they're um, embodying this concept of harm reduction, which means helping people use more safely, helping people get connected to treatment if that if that's what they want, um, giving them clean needles and uh, and safer ways to use. Um, and there's some really amazing people doing that work right now in various places of the country. Of course, I'm doing most of my reporting in rural America and in Appalachia. So, I mean, those places have are less culturally inclined to accept things like harm reduction. So, but I've found some people who are figuring ways around that or figuring out how to change minds, change hearts and minds in some of these rural, very conservative areas. And so that, that to me is the answer. Like we know what works. We know that harm reduction works. We know the MAT, the buprenorphine and the methadone work. We know that people need help with housing um, and homelessness and, and um, you know, uh, trauma-informed care. Men, you know, we've got a huge mental illness crisis in this country. We know these things work. We're just not doing them at a scale that matches the scale of the crisis. So that's what the new book is about. But it's definitely just like dope sick part two. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about the new book. When do you expect it will come out? It's on schedule to publish August 16th of this year. Oh, and fast. yeah, and it also tells the, the behind the scenes story of uh, some activists who are trying to make sure that the victims' voices get heard uh, in the in the Purdue bankruptcy, um, and and in to some extent in in some of the other opioid litigation. But it was just you know, especially when COVID hit, all the court hearings went online. If you were a victim, you you rarely got your voice heard in this. And so I followed the tra- travails of uh, Nan Golden, the artist who, you know, finally succeeded just a few months ago or a few weeks ago in getting the Sackler name removed from the Met. Um, a lawyer named Mike Quinn, who's basically he's the only pro bono working pro bono lawyer working on this case um, and is filing objectives right objections right and left uh, on behalf of a small victim group called the Ad Hoc Committee on Accountability. And to me, it's a really interesting story because Mike has has the whole system figured out and he's going to make noise and he's going to keep taking swipes until something happens. And um, so, you know, I'm I'm fighting for the from the victims, but from different angles, whether it's somebody doing harm reduction in the um, McDonald's parking lot or it's, you know, somebody starting a drug users union in West Virginia, which good Lord, who, who would have ever thought that was possible um, to 
you know, this lawyer that I mentioned who, um, who has made a huge difference in the outcome of uh, the bank, the Purdue bankruptcy. And it's so helpful to hear these stories. You're giving voice to these stories and, and providing a platform for what people are experiencing to be told, which I found incredibly helpful in terms of, like I said earlier, the, the destigmatizing of this particular crisis. Yeah, thank you for saying that. You, you, you. It's it's a hard story to untangle, and it could be told so many different ways. But you know, I'm I'm 57. I've been a journalist since the day I graduated from college, and I. What I realized, it took me a decade or two that that I do the best storytelling when I pick the stories that move me, mm. you know, and I put those, I work really hard to put those into context with what's happening on the ground. And um, so I, I think, again, this new book, Raising Lazarus, is is another way of sort of the, raising the flag and saying, hey, it's only gotten worse during COVID. Um, and, and justice isn't easy. Uh, it's taking a lot of these people doing a lot of work to make sure their voices are heard. And a lot of people, you know, working night and day to help the people that nobody wants to see. You know, these people are largely unseen. Many of them are homeless, living in tents. Um, they're really doing this hard, gritty work of meeting people where they are and trying to bring them into systems of care. And it's, I find it really moving. And that seems to be a thread for you. I haven't read True Vine and Factory Man, your two previous books, but after reading their short summaries, I want to. But that seems to be, <laughs> uh, you, you find what pulls on your heart and you, and you follow that. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's really accurate. I just realized I do a better job when it's something I really care about. So, uh, you know, that thing where you, I've learned to pay attention to things that make the hair stand up on the back of my neck. There's this, the new book begins literally in a McDonald's parking lot next to a dumpster. And this nurse practitioner who's worked all day treating the addicted, he's meeting somebody to give him clean needles and to get him on buprenorphine. And the guy says, look, if I don't get on this medicine, I'm going to die. I, I, I've got to get off the needle or I'm going to die. And Tim, the nurse practitioner, says two things. One, you can get better. People do get better all the time. You usually only hear about the deaths, but but it's possible. Like, don't give up hope. And two, the key to that is don't disappear. So if you relapse in the next week, still come back to our appointment next week. And it's this idea of enveloping folks who have been made to feel like crap. You know, our our system treats people with addiction like crap. They don't want them in their office. They don't want them in their parking lot. Um, but they're actually amazing people, many of whom, as I said before, were initially addicted through no fault of their own. And and don't we as fellow humans um, deserve to to treat them as people with medical conditions that are worthy of care. Um, and don't doctors who help, who helped, you know, I used to get really worked up about this. The first time I ever spoke to a group of doctors, I was like, any of y'all who ever took a free item from a pharmaceutical company should be, you know, ethically bound to become part of the solution, right? Mm -hmm. Like they make them, they make doctors get 
wavered and do this training to prescribe buprenorphine, even though they don't have to have special training to prescribe opioids. And I was trying to guilt them into doing it. I don't know that that was the best strategy. Although uh, the, the, the ER where I was speaking at the time eventually did get all their doctors wavered and they're so proud of the results. But there is this real um, kind of knee jerk, like we don't want those people in our clinic. We don't, we don't want those people, they're bad people. And, and we all are sort of acculturated that way because we've been taught by the war on drugs that drug users are bad. They, they, they must go to jail, you know, and to, really deliver care to these people who are suffering, we had to kind of put that war on drug mentality aside. And to the point of, um, you know, even for me, I certainly um, had some biases of my own that I had to unravel as, as I've been, you know, been working on this topic now for 10 years, but you don't, you don't recognize your own blind spots. Right. Uh, so, if it's hard for me and I work in this this area or have for 10 years, and like it's gonna be hard for the average reader too. So which is why in the new book especially, I really try to go back in history to the war on drugs and you know, back to the Harrison Narcotics Act, which outlawed heroin in 1914, and um how political leaders have used racism as a way to sort of stoke the flames of this idea that that the drug users should be incarcerated rather than um, given medical attention, and but it's a tricky uh, uh, web of threads to unravel because, as I said, you know, we don't realize that, that we all have biases, but you know, other countries deal with this much, the drug crisis much differently, and have much better results. They also are much better at regulating drugs um, before they come to the market because they haven't let industry <laughs> take over the regulatory systems. And spending time with your work was also an opportunity for me to challenge my biases. I'm 48. I was raised on the uh, uh, in, the, in the time of, of Reagan and, and this is your brain on drugs. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I want to admit that I went into watching the show, reading your book with a different attitude and appreciation uh, for all of this. And yeah, I, I really hope that through the work that you're doing and, and by more and more people uh, spending time with this material and understanding it and unpacking it that some of the services you mentioned earlier uh, become more readily available and, and uh, yeah and some of these people are so cool some of the people doing this work like the nurse practitioner i mentioned there's a young woman in northern virginia outside of dc who lost her brother because she didn't have narcan when he od'd and she was like 22 at the time and so she's gotten laws changed in virginia to make narcan more accessible she now runs a mobile uh needle exchange clinic she sends people into jails which didn't want anything to do with treatment now they're doing mat in the jails which is still very rare and she has figured out how to make change in her community to take the worst experience of her life and make it into something really positive. And when people, 
and th this is kind of where the magic sauce in the new book comes in is when people see just like that ed director i was talking about earlier how he's having really good results now um when they see that happening they like their job again they they want to do it and it's they almost become evangelists for the cause and so i'm hoping the new book will sort of sort of like like the keaton character at the end right he's overcome his thing and now he's helping others mm -hmm. and um you know that is happening out there but those people need to be held up you know as heroes and because they're truth tellers, they're heroes, they're doing God's work, they're they're really working hard, and um, they're just incredible. And so I'm really excited that, um, you know, that the show ends on that note. Of course, that's, there's so much more work to be done. And I think the new book, Raising Lazarus, um, underscores that in a really um, stark way, while also just kind of holding up the best of humanity. I'm excited for it to come out. And uh, if you're open to it, I'd love to have you back. Absolutely. I... This has been really fun. For anyone listening who is either struggling themselves with opioid addiction or has a family member or a friend or knows of someone, how do you recommend someone go about treatment, seeking treatment? Do you tend to recommend any resources in general? Yeah, it's called Partnership to End Addiction. And I would find out first if there's a harm reduction group available. You know, the main trouble with uh, getting people into treatment is people don't want to go. Like 40% of people with OUD, they simply don't want to get better. Now, that, that sounds like an awful thing, and it is an awful thing. But a lot of that is they don't want to go back to someplace that treated them like crap before, right? Uh, where they were stigmatized. And so that's why this idea of meeting people in parking lots and at needle exchanges and meeting them where they are in their homeless encampments is so important. So if if, if it's somebody who is really um, on the fringe and you're trying to get them help back into systems of care, I would look for the local harm reduction organization. Now, if it's somebody who's maybe a little earlier in their addiction, I would try to find out who is doing um, medication-assisted treatment um, in that community. And so like there are publicly funded, some health departments do it, most do not, but that's a place to start with. Um, some nonprofit hospital systems are now beginning to do that. So that's another place to start with. Uh, I'm hoping that it becomes just standard that emergency departments um, start to do that and to bridge people into outpatient treatment for medication-assisted treatment. But that's still a very, very rare thing. So, I mean, to me, the most important thing is to remember that um, only one in five people uh, actually need rehab. A lot of families will remortgage their homes to, you know, send somebody to an out-of-state rehab. Two-thirds of rehabs in America don't allow MAT. So that's exactly, you're remortgaging your home to send your loved one exactly to the kind of treatment that most likely isn't going to help them. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and the, the, this idea of like letting people hit bottom is really something that as a culture we need to erase. Just letting people fall out of, oh, Tess will get better when she realizes we're just not going to talk to her anymore kind of thing. So we're going to send her to another state to go to rehab. And then when she bombs out of there, she's homeless again, but now she's homeless 
on the other side of the country with no resources at all to help her. And so now her mother says, yeah, I didn't realize that, you know, hitting bottom, the bottom has a basement and the basement has a trap door. So that's a lesson that a lot of families have had to learn. Um, this idea of just letting people, uh, sort of kicking them out and letting them suffer, um, is the way to go. It, the, that abstinence only mindset might've worked, might work for alcohol use disorder, but it doesn't really work for opioid use disorder. And, um, that's something I think that our that our show portrays really well. That was really helpful to learn. Yeah, when you see him asking that, wait a minute, does yeah, it's it's, it's powerful. Yeah. If I could say one more thing about self care, that'd be great. At the end of my book, a lot of the helpers that I was following for the new book, Raising Lazarus are struggling themselves. They're just so overwhelmed. And, you know, you read a lot about that with COVID with doctors and nurses and hospitals being overwhelmed and this concept of self-care being so important. And, um, you know, some of the helpers who are people in recovery are relapsing because of the stress of helping other people. Um, and, and with COVID, everything is just 10 times worse. And so I, for my afterward in the new book, I called this expert on trauma named um, Laura Vandernoot Lipsky, who has written a couple books about uh, trauma stewardship is the name of her institute that she runs. And secondary trauma, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And secondary trauma and this idea of the helpers um, needing help. And, um, you know, I've experience some of that just reporting on it and and you worry about these people that you get close to and you spend a lot of time with and she has a lot of really good nitty-gritty tips about um how to do self-care in both of her books that i found really helpful um one is like work up a sweat every single day like that's a non-starter not to sweat because you've got to process um what it is you're seeing and, and, and you've got to get those endorphins out, um, that, that trauma response, you know, it's so easy when you're, when you're down or really, really tired, um, exhausted just to, you know, pour a big old IPA or gin and tonic or whatever, uh, when the thing that's really going to make you feel good is to get outside in nature, take a walk or, or get a good sweat on you know, and um, learning mindfulness and meditation and, and yoga has been a huge help to me. Um, so it's just something I've learned um, that if you're going to do anything adjacent to this kind of work, that it's so important to take care of your body and that in taking care of your body, that takes care of your brain, you know, and your emotional side. Yes, that's so important. Thank you for sharing that. It means so much coming from you. Over the past 12 years, we have supported a variety of people and organizations who are on the front lines, helping people and their communities. And if you're listening and if GLOW can be of assistance to you and your team, please reach out to us. We'll provide an email address in our show notes. Well, that'd be great. I guess as a final question, Beth, where can people find you online? Sure. I'm, um, my Twitter is at paper girl Macy. Um, I was the first paper girl in my little town 
<laughs> uh, it's kind of a silly name, but I love that's that. what I picked 10 years ago and I'm sticking with it. Um, and my website <laughs> is uh, BethMacyWriter.com. Some other Beth Macy writers stole BethMacy.com. But, um, and then my, uh, and then I'm also on Facebook at Beth Macy Author. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. You have certainly opened my eyes, um, my wife as well. And I look forward to seeing what you continue to create. And thank you for being such a gift to the world. Oh, what a nice thing to say back at you. You're, you're, um, the classes have been just a huge part of um, my process and all of this. So, so thanks to you guys. Well, thank you to our team at Glow. They're going to love hearing that. They love hearing how our service helps people. It's wonderful. It really is. All right. Well, take care. Happy New Year. You too. Happy New Year. Thank you, Beth. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at Glow. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider, Red Cub Agency, for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself, because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find The Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.